You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Rodney, Mark, Patrick. Slimmed down version of the Beltway briefing this week. Unfortunately, there are two. Well, there's one ugly green sweatshirt and one ugly green jersey on the screen that I'm looking at, which is extremely disturbing. And, and get I, used it, to it. You got two weeks of green. Well, in an ugly <laughs> twist of fate, I had planned a, we had planned, Rodney, a trip to Philadelphia this past Monday. Possibly the worst day to be in Philadelphia of the entire year. But here we are. For, we for are. a Giants fan, maybe Rodney was welcomed with love because his Raiders hate the Chiefs. And he, he was able to side with us. It, it was a great visit. It was not a great, a great dinner, Howard. Two I had dinner with two Giants fans, That's... and the, the dinner matched the Giants fans' mood. <laughs> That's Joe Hill's fault. Okay. So guys, let's let's start here. It came out this week. Obviously, Nikki Haley rolled out her initial plans to declare, I think, in the coming coming days for 2024. Uh, so you've got so far Nikki Haley and the former president having declared their intention to seek the Republican nomination for president. I guess, where are the rest of the candidates, Rodney? What do you expect as far as the Republican field filling out for 2024? I'll be honest with you. I'm a little surprised that Nikki was first out of the gate. I mean, that that comes with some some consequences, possibly. Um, One of two things. Either she's She's got an understanding from the Trump campaign and from him himself that he's not going to go on the attack early. Otherwise, she puts herself out there for him to hone his attacks, which in a big presidential primary field will be very helpful for him winning the nomination again. Uh, I'm not surprised that it's limited right now to Nikki Haley, Donald Trump and some some former mayor from where? Rhode Island? I don't even Cranston. Something I, I mean, look, I'm from rural Illinois, and I don't even know where where this is. Uh, but the field's well, I know where explore. Cranston, Rhode Island is, but I'm not familiar with the candidate. I got to admit. Yeah. yeah, don't worry, Mark. You Democrats would be fine. He's not going anywhere. Uh, but uh, the, you know, the big elephant in the room right now is, is is my former freshman classmate in Congress, and that's that's Ron DeSantis. Uh, Ron is the one that's getting President Trump's ire right now. Uh, Ron, I think, has positioned himself well through fate of COVID response actions in Florida and building that national profile for going against the grain and then, you know, been proven right in many cases. Uh, but some other names, I think you got to watch out for Christy Nome. Tim Scott is, is Senator Tim Scott is venturing into Iowa. Uh, these are folks that I think are going to test the waters and and really I think everybody, except maybe Ron, sits back and thinks, well, if I'm going to get hit by Trump, let's do it early when no one's paying attention. Right. Is it is it possible that these other potential candidates are waiting 
for Trump to encounter the legal trouble that seems like it's coming down the pike at, you know, sometime soon. I, I think the, the anticipation by Democrats that Trump's going to be in legal trouble happened the day after he got elected. And it's yeah. been pretty disappointing to them. And frankly, I don't know any Republican who doesn't believe that unless classified documents would have been or were found mm -hmm. at Joe Biden's homes, um, we all believe that Donald Trump would have been indicted by Merrick Garland's DOJ. Yeah. Right now, it's kind of a wash. I, I don't think anybody gets indicted. And I think they blame the bureaucrats for screwing up the uh, the transition of documents, secure documents that we talked about in the last podcast. Yeah, I mean, that I agree that take the classified documents off the table. But you've got the New York criminal. You've got a New York criminal investigation. You've got the Georgia criminal investigation. You've got other, you've got this. I mean, it's unbelievable. We're still talking about this, but the Stormy Daniels cover up bubbled up, bubbled back up this week. And I guess I'm like legal jeopardy is legal jeopardy. And it feels to me like something may be coming for him. And, and maybe they're waiting to see if trouble kind of compounds for the former president. I, I don't know. Do Republicans care? The Republic does the Republican primary electorate care if Trump gets indicted in Georgia? Let's just say. I, I don't know. Those who support him unequivocally, no, they don't care. I mean, yeah, they, they don't. Care. They're going to rationalize it's another attack on their great hero, right? Um, but I think a lot of Republicans care, which is why you <laughs> see with polling, Howard, that. You know, most Republicans don't want Trump to be the nominee again. And, right. and, and this is why I think this is why I think the field will grow larger. I mean, Mike Pompeo is going to be out there, too. Mike Pence. Um, once that happens, Trump's going to be able to try and recreate the magic of just eviscerating them one by one. But if it gets down to a Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, I, I think Ronnie D is the victor. Uh, yeah. if it gets down to like it did last time to where it was Trump and Cruz. People were like, "Well, we hate Cruz, so let's let's ride the tiger. Let's go with the let's go with the new guy." Isn't part of the problem, part of the challenge, the winner take all system, Rodney? That that seems to me to be to Trump's advantage. If the field gets crowded uh, and it's winner take all, he's got his base, and he could. He could win this nomination with a third of your party by just taking state after state and, and all the delegates with 35 percent. Yeah, he, he was able to do that. I mean, but that winner take all kind of helped Joe Biden last time, too, uh, on the Democratic side. Um, you know, we've got we've got an opportunity, I think, to really get some good candidates out front if they're going to get the coverage. Here's the major issue that that the national news media is going to have to answer. They gave Trump so much earned free earned media when he became the candidate in 2016. It's unbelievable. They, they, ran, they ran his campaign. Yeah. They thought there's no way this guy's going to win. Heck, I thought there's no way this guy's going to win. I supported Marco Rubio in 2016. But in the end, that earned media allowed him to build that base and speak to that forgotten blue collar middle class that now adores Donald Trump. 
and will go to the wall for him. Remember, those same blue-collar workers in, in, in Philadelphia, in, in the you know, central Pennsylvania more so, and in central Illinois that used to be hardcore labor yellow dog Democrats are now the hardest core Republican Trump supporters. And if there are enough of them that are willing to vote in that primary, yeah, you're right, Mark. It could put him over the top again. And I think he's the only candidate we have that can lose to Biden. I tend to agree with that because it's hard for me to see putting up when you've got Biden, Biden's principal weakness, I think, is his age and his where he is mentally or viewed mentally, his lack of inability to communicate effectively. And it's just crazy to me to give away that advantage by putting up another old guy, Mark. No, you know, what well, do you think? I think I would not, Mark, not that I'm calling some a 70 something old, but <laughs> I was going to say I would use more charitable uh, language. Let's do the uh, malice towards none and charity towards all linking <laughs> thing here about age. But yes, yes. If Joe Biden were 20 years younger, his candidacy would look much different. And I agree with you that if it is in November of 2024, an 80-year-old against a 50-something-year-old, that that alone is, is a challenge for the president. The president, by the way, and vice president, um, will be in Philadelphia today. The DNC policy retreat is here. And they are coming in not to announce the uh, reelect, but to defend the record and to to launch the the launch of the reelect. A soft launch really happens today in Philadelphia. So the the election season is upon us. This is underway yeah. uh, already. But Rodney, I wanted to ask you it, what is a little bit of a, a mystery to me. Mike Pence uh, from my home state of Indiana who won the lottery because he was, as you know, about to be unemployed in Indiana and ended up in the White House. But on paper, he sure looks like a guy who would have the broadest possible appeal to your party. And and yet no one takes his candidacy seriously that I that I can tell. Is he just is he just a non-factor in the Republican Party? He's kind of cool now because he has classified documents in his house. So that that's part of the brand. I, I'm I'm waiting for the, the next story to leak that former President Obama is negotiating for the FBI searches of his, you know, yeah. eight homes. Right. Uh, you, you can know. be sure that Howard's fellow country club members very unhappy with these developments. Very unhappy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, as the last time I saw him when he was lecturing me about Republicans being racist in front of my constituents, um, <laughs> so be it, you know, go yeah. ahead, <laughs> have him be angry. Uh, but in but in the end, you know, Mike Pence is kind of an enigma right now. You're right, Mark. I mean, I was with Mike Pence until the bitter end, the night we certified the election, that Joe Biden was the winner after what we all witnessed on January 6th and what he and I personally witnessed on the House and the Senate floor happening. Um, he's a good man at heart. And, and I would argue uh, Eric Holcomb's a friend of mine, Governor Holcomb is, 
I knew him before he was uh, in elected politics. But that year, 2016, uh, I wouldn't be too sure if Mike Pence might not have pulled off the surprise and been able to get reelected governor. And frankly, he he may have regrets that he didn't do that because the <laughs> biggest hindrance that he has right now is the fact that he was Donald Trump's vice president. Great and there is point. no one who's going to get the ire of Donald Trump in this next election cycle more than Mike Pence. Right. All right. He, he'll be positively remembered in the history books uh, for what he did on January 6th. So he'll come out OK. But I, I agree, Mark. He he isn't you know, I don't think he's a viable candidate. Uh, Patrick, on the from your point of view, who would you most dislike <laughs> getting the Republican nomination? Like who who scares you the most? Well, Trump's just scary, period. Even though I think he's probably the, you know, the best bet for Democrats to hold the White House. Yeah. It's not a bet I want to have to take because the country's volatile well, and I don't. Yeah. We lost that bet once. We lost that bet in 2016. Yeah. So, you know, listen, I, I kind of am of the view that if if the Republicans stick with Trump, I think they're in, in real trouble. And I think it's probably Biden's best bet to get reelected. I think someone else with a different vision, a little younger that wants to take the country in a different direction can create sort of a generational contrast. I think they have a pretty good shot uh, given Biden's age and a whole host of other factors. I think, you know, we were talking a little bit about, about the field, maybe some of the slowness to announce, although these folks are all very ambitious, you know, might be the factor that we're talking about with Trump and how many people are going to be in the field. I think there's a sense of like, let's just let this settle a little bit because uh, I don't think they want a situation. I don't think anyone wants to be responsible for just handing Trump the nomination by way of making the field too crowded uh, so he can win all these winner take all states. I do think a lot of candidates are probably trying to just assess, you know, there's a long history in presidential politics on both sides of candidates meeting their moment. Uh, and candidates missing their moment. And I'm sure if you're Ron DeSantis, you know, he's got the toughest thing right now because he's governor. He's got a real job uh, until this session's over. He's got to make sure he, you know, is doing a good job. That's an opportunity, frankly, for people like Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, who are in Congress to go out, raise money, get more name recognition, build relationships in the early states. But, you know, I'm sure DeSantis's people are saying, you know, we want to be Bill Clinton in 1992. We want to be Barack Obama in 2008. We want to be Donald Trump in 2016. We want to run when our moment's here. We don't want to be Chris Christie in 2012, Mario Cuomo in 1992. We don't want to miss our moment and, and skip yeah. an entire... It, you know, Patrick, you make a great point about the history of these cycles because you just think back, Barack Obama in 2008, <laughs> was nowhere until he was the nominee. Hillary Clinton had already been nominated and then he took it away from her. Yep. Remember in 2012 on your side, Rodney, there was a month when Michelle Bachman was the next president. <laughs> so these, these candidates come and go and it, it doesn't settle out always uh, until the end. I would just say, Howard, it, it, it's geographically uh, interesting to, to answer the question you asked of Patrick. I think the Biden folks 
uh, are afraid of South Carolina. South Carolina made Joe Biden president. We all know he was in fourth place until the South Carolina primary. And then a week later, he was the nominee. But you have uh, Governor Haley and Senator Scott. And those are two scary candidates for 80-year-old white Joe Biden. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I mean, they're both, they're, I mean, they have tremendous resumes. They seem to be good people. They, you know, they, they would, they would present a real contrast for the electorate. And, and I think they would give president Biden real problems in getting reelected. I just don't know if this Republican primary electorate is going to nominate either of them. I just, and the, the, the way I know that, and Rodney, I'd love your take. As a Democrat, if I'm starting to like one of these guys, I don't think that's all that good for that's them bad. in trying to get the Republican primary the, electorate to vote for them. So this is the I don't mean to pick at a scab here with my new best friend, Rodney, but this is the Rodney Davis story. You you run a reasonable guy and he's in trouble in a Republican primary. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, though, because like Tim Scott, he's someone I mean, I. I hear him. He is a really talented, inspiring guy. And I, 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 I mean, and I say that as a Democrat. So but I wonder, what does that mean on the other side? I mean, I know there's Republicans that obviously think the same thing, but are the kind of just the, the red meat crowd ever going to support someone like that? Well, they will if if that individual becomes an early winner. Yeah, because um, it's the same thing that happened Ooh. with the Donald Trump and Ted Cruz in 16. It's the same thing when, uh, you know, everybody was on the Rick Perry train in 2012. <laughs> and so all of a sudden they weren't. Why? Because Mitt Romney started winning and everybody wants to go with a winner. Um, I do agree with with Mark and Patrick. If I had to pick one person that is being mentioned right now as a possible candidate that should scare the Democrats the most, that's Senator Tim Scott. He's got a great life story. He's somebody who has the respect on both sides of the aisle. And he's somebody who's not afraid to stand up and face the criticism uh, that's going to come his way uh, as, as a, a national candidate. But, but the key point you have to, you have to look at is, uh, number one, who's going to win early? You know, if a Trump comes out, because Iowa still matters to we Republicans, not USL Corridor Eagles fans. Um, <laughs> but when... We're going south, South Carolina. South Carolina picks the president. If somebody, if they did, they certainly did in in twenty twenty. Well, they're they're going to be thanked for that by the the president. I love Jim Clyburn. He's he he got he got something that not many would get for their state as a member of Congress, and uh, you got to respect him for that. But but if Iowa speaks early and Iowa speaks for (laughs) Trump again. I think the media is going to cover that as just basically a virtual coronation. And then a lot of voters are going to assume that that's who the winner is going to be. And you begin to rationalize yourself. You just got to count the votes on time this time. It was like weeks in 2020 (laughs) before we found out what the good people of Iowa decided. No, 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 no. Remember in Iowa with the caucus system, the counting is run by the respective state parties. Right. I, ironically, I was in Iowa in my old grade school classroom campaigning for President Trump at the Iowa caucuses. And I actually had my old grade school 
And one of my kindergarten classmates was in that caucus room uh, caucusing for President Trump. Uh, we had no problem on the Republican side counting the votes. There were no system breakdowns. It was you, your side. Yeah, but you only have one candidate. It's hey, a hey, still to, it's no a problem counting count when there's only one person. It was not unanimous in my in my caucuses for President Trump. But what happened was, Patrick, you all denied your home state and Mark's home state candidate, Secretary Buttigieg, from actually being able to go out and be declared the winner to get some more you can listen to previous podcasts, Rodney. I was I was very unhappy uh, because yeah, I, I I mean that's exactly what happened, and it changed. I mean, it was great for Biden, but it, it the whole cycle it, it probably still would have ultimately meant you know Biden probably would have won, but it changed everything. He didn't get an Obama moment on caucus night. He wasn't able to really carry that momentum into New Hampshire. Klobuchar stayed in, which essentially denied him a win in New Hampshire because he almost beat Bernie. Had she gotten out the way you typically do when you take fifth or sixth in Iowa? I mean, it just would have been different if if Pete had won the first two states. He would have been able to hang in there longer. But it was my personal... I mean, Senator Buttigieg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or but... you just, or you just, if you win the first two states, you can, it just would have been a longer, drawn out primary process. Right? So, yeah. guys, the. It I don't know that like, he would have beaten Trump, though. So no, uh, probably not. I, I, yeah. All of that, I, I totally, I have no idea. But yeah, yeah. If he it would feels like um, Kamala's profile has been raised in the last couple of weeks, which I, I don't know what to make of that because it feels like she's a, to me, feels like a political liability, um, and I mean I don't know. You know, well, popularity-wise, but they Mark could raise her profile by giving her some classified documents to take home. Right. <laughs> I think she's embarrassed that she's the only uh, only one in the game without classified documents. But she's the vice presidential nominee. Period. Period. There okay. is zero chance, zero, yeah. as in none. <laughs> that Joe Biden is going to dump Kamala Harris. So they have two choices. I, they are dumping her. They can continue to distance her and, and run away from their own running mate, or they can try to rehab her. And I think what you're seeing is the beginning of a rehab. She's here shoulder to shoulder with the president in Philadelphia for the DNC, which I think was a very studied and deliberate sign and signal that this is our vice president and our vice presidential candidate. So let everybody get with her. I'm pretty sure he'd love to dump her, but he can't. 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 And, and, and I mean, to your point, political liability, she'd definitely be a political liability if she was ever at the top of the ticket. That would be, I think, a major problem for the Well, Democratic that's the point. Party. They're going to have and that can't, that, of course, could never happen with an 80 year old president. No, right. exactly. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, part of it is they'd never dump her because it, what's the point? I mean, the, the vice president sees a weird job because it gets a lot of attention by nature of it being number two. And it got a lot of attention, obviously, uh, with the certification of the election in 2016. But like at the end of the day, there's a pretty low bar for doing that job because there's not a whole lot uh, yeah. of constitutional requirements. So basically, as long as you are not negatively impacting 
the perception. And I just think people official Washington obviously has dismissed her completely. Right. I mean, they just think she's a total non factor in this administration. But is she really hurting him politically with the electorate? I don't think so. I I don't think so. the only qualification for doing the job is the ability to assume the top job. Totally. And when you've got an 80 year old. I don't think this is a normal scenario when you have the oldest president in U.S. history at the top of the ticket. And that's your biggest vulnerability, because I think Biden was on our partner, Mike Schmidt's podcast this week. And he asked me if Biden has overperformed expectations. And I think he has. And I think he's got a record to, to run on, a record that a normal incumbent president would love to have. I, whoever's on the other side of the whoever's on the other side, but being 80 year old, 80 years old, having her a, a, an unpopular vice president who doesn't excite people as the heir apparent, just it hurts him, I think. I don't know. Here's why I don't think it. Well, it I, I get what you're saying, but here's the, the I think the reality. If you're not going to vote in a general election for Joe Biden because you don't like Kamala Harris, you weren't voting for him anyway. What he doesn't want to do is piss off a lot of the voters who got him to where he is by insulting the first yeah. African-American. But no, he there's, can't. There's just nothing he that- He can't. And also, uh, just uh, Rodney will appreciate this representing the uh, district that he, that he did. Um, the most disastrous swap out of a vice president for another in American history was Andrew Johnson, whom Rodney's guy, Abe Lincoln, put in. uh, He fired somebody, Hannibal, not Hannibal Lecter, Hannibal somebody from Maine and put in Andrew Johnson. Then, of course, he's assassinated and it's the most disastrous succession in American presidential history. It's tricky swapping out a vice president. Yeah, I mean, he's not going to do it. I just think it's a I think it's a major liability. And here's what Democratic people and you heard it bubble up, Howard, to your point the last week or two. There's just been a lot of Harris talk. Here's what I hear people in the Democratic Party talking about often, whether it's soon, God forbid, nothing happens to the president or it's in four years. Every single Democratic uh, vice president has gotten the nomination in our party since 1960. We that's just the way it's gone. Good, bad and all the rest. If you're vice president in our party, you get you get the nomination at some point. It might not be right away as Joe Biden experienced. But when you run you got a pretty dang good shot at it. And I don't know anyone that thinks she's going to win a general election. And well, I'm just running, what, I'm running through them in my head, Patrick. So they all keep, get keep the nomination running them. and lose. A lot, most <laughs> of them don't get elected president, by the keep way. But running them. the nomination. Of right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Johnson obviously was was an exception, but Hubert Humphrey got it and lost. Walter Mondale uh, got, got it and lost. Gore and got lost. it and lost. Al yeah. Gore got Gore? it and the lost. Got it and won and then lost. <laughs> yeah, got it and won and then lost. Exactly. Joe Biden got it and and won it. Got it yeah. and won and lost. Oh, you guys kill yeah. me. So, <laughs> guys, this week uh, we kind of kicked off the debt ceiling negotiation. The speaker went to the White House to meet with the president, which I think, Patrick, by all accounts, 
seemed to go well. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, it yeah. it it feels like governing. Maybe governing is back in vogue, Rodney. Um, that that's what it that's what it feels like. I I, I agree, and and good, um, and I think this is where. I've mentioned before in this podcast, Kevin McCarthy is in a stronger position than he would have been because of the fight that he had. Uh, he's able to, to move a larger block of individuals toward the governing middle status. But let's not kid ourselves. I mean, a lot of us on this on this podcast have been in the those White House meetings. Um, they're, you know, second to maybe only conference committees in Congress as being nothing but dog and pony shows. You know, you come in, you you sit down, you talk, you, you, you speak at the 30,000 foot level. You're not getting into the nitty gritty of what is it going to take to actually address the root problem at hand, which in this case is the debt ceiling. You know, the yeah. only time that I saw an administration sit down with a wide swath of members of Congress to really go into details and negotiate, that was actually ironically under the leadership of Mike Pence, who was the most loyal vice president. I've ever seen and witnessed who was in every meeting I was in with President Trump was negotiating with all of us, a, a, you know, a cross section of our Republican conference on how to fix our broken health care system. That's the only time I've ever seen a meeting at the White House or at the Capitol with the executive branch actually go into the details. And I wouldn't expect much out of out of what happened this week, but I like the response afterwards. And that's really what people have to pay attention to. Are they sniping at each other when they go out to those microphones yeah. and, and to the sharks in the media in the White House that want gotcha moments? No, they weren't. And, and you know, one other thing to mention too, first off, Kamala Harris um, would be in a better position to be a nominee for president if she would actually do something like maybe when she's given responsibilities, like being the border czar to go there, address issues, but she hasn't. And I think a lot of Democrats were really thinking that she was going to play more of a leadership role than she has. And I, it should be disappointing to many Democrats that she hasn't. But in the end, in the end, Kevin McCarthy is playing his cards right. And one thing to watch out for if we don't ever get to it, Kevin McCarthy has been more accessible to the media than any speaker that I've ever witnessed in my time working as a staffer and as a member of Congress. He stood out and answered questions for about two hours in the last two days. Rodney, what what's it going to take? Is Social Security off the table? Is Medicare off the table? Where are these cuts going to come from? At, at a high level, I understand we aren't there yet. But if you take Social Security off the table, which it seems the Republicans have done. If you take Medicare and Medicaid off the table, again, it feels like that's happening. What What's left to cut? Well, that's a debate that needs to happen in Washington. I mean, I'm not going to use this podcast to be cited in a political ad that Republicans want to cut <laughs> Social Security and Medicare um, because that's what would happen. But in the end, I, 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 will, honest, I will give you an honest assessment. I said before, I think the third rail of politics right now is immigration. I think there's more willingness in both parties to not cut the programs for anybody who's going to be on, who is on them or going to be on them. 
but to address the insolvency issues for, you know, not your generation, Mark. I'm not saying you're old or anything like Howard did, uh, but <laughs> it's for my generation. Yeah, for tell, Patrick's you, generation. tell the government to keep its hands off my Medicare, okay? Yeah, yeah, and and Howard's generation, because you know what? For us, when when we get to be uh, eligible for those programs, if something's not done, they're Forget insolvent. It. And and more importantly, your generation, Mark, cares whether or not those programs are available for your grandkids. And if you don't demand that right. something be done, um, which is the only way to assess uh, to address the drivers of the debt and deficit in this country. <laughs> um, that's mandatory spending. That's not just those two, but multiple mandatory spending programs. We could cut all discretionary spending and 80% of the budget, 75, 80% of, of federal expenditures still go out the door. Yeah, they're not going to trade more cuts for a debt ceiling, for the debt ceiling being raised. But I think I think they will trade exploration and study and some sort of a commission reform, a discussion yep. about reform for raising the debt ceiling. That's, I think that's where this ultimately lands on is these mandatory enough, entitlement. Is that enough for the Republican caucus members? I mean, that's where I, I don't think McCarthy is a terrible hand because he's got a precedent from 2011 for the Democrats folding essentially and cutting a deal. And Biden loves this deal cutting stuff. He's got people screaming at him not to negotiate, but his inclination, just who he is, is going to be to, but, but a commission like Howard said, is that enough for Republicans who want real cuts? Well, we'll have to see. I mean, in the end, this is why Congress is so exciting right now. I mean, it's the most open process that's existed in, in Congress in decades. The individual member of Congress is more empowered today than any time in my 26 year career of working in the House of Representatives and serving serving there also. Uh, one individual member can come in with an amendment anytime on any bill, on any issue. This is going to be, it's actually going to be entertainment. I think for me, it's kind of a, you know, kind of a policy geek sometimes. You know, this is the real popcorn moment, not watching the speakers vote for 15 times. And, and I think you're going to see a lot of machinations being, you know, a lot of machinations that those of us who have been in policy making for a while, we're not aware of is a concern or or an idea that's going to be brought up that could be part of any solution. A commission, yes, I think when you look back at history, could be a way that you find consensus. But in the end, I think a lot of our colleagues uh, are going to say, "Well, it didn't work last time, so why this time?" Look, it, it's terrible to keep piling piling on debt, but the irony here is if they fight too much and our credit rating gets downgraded, the result is that it's more expensive to borrow and we right. bump up against the debt ceiling even sooner going forward. So it's like there has to be, it, with this dynamic, there has to be a place to compromise. and There will be. Yeah, and it was good, and and it felt normal to see them. Yeah, in like just, the meeting. Just a, a footnote, Howard, to yeah. the McCarthy Biden meeting is that it took place uh, under the stewardship of a new chief of staff in the White Jeff House. Science, yes, which uh, someone you know well from your work in government, and and that is 
consequential comes at a a pivotal time. Ron Klain, I'm going to give Ron Klain a shout out here for having gotten a lot done and having gone out on top. He left at a high moment for this administration. And Zeintz is a different chief than than Klain was. And it'll be interesting to see which way that plays in in these dead seal discussions. He's he's a, he's really an operations guy. He's not really a political guy. I mean, he had a long career in the private sector. He uh, ran he's the also advisory. really rich. Yeah, he's <laughs> really rich. He ran the advisory board companies. Very accomplished guy. Came into government really for his second career. And I met with him, got to know him as I was leaving Treasury and TARP, and he was coming in. We spent some time together. He wanted me to talk him through how we did what we did at Treasury, how we got the machinery of government to to kind of to move uh, amidst a, a crisis. And he's 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 an operations guy. Maybe he's become a little bit more political, but I think well, he's one of those people who came in for for a second career. And I think his job is to keep the trains running on time and and keep the White House running effectively. So the political side of the White House, yep. as you've said before, Mark, can go out and run a presidential. This the, sounds the like most... the Schweitzer chief of staff like model. You did, the, the operations, well, like running the government, yeah. you'd have Estelle outside the Oval telling people what to do. <laughs> well, Estelle thinks it's I, I work in the Oval, so... <laughs> I we read this that morning, office but, conference room. So, I mean, it kind of, you know. The most impressive thing I read this morning about the new chief of staff, about your friend Jeff Zients, is that he believes that too much time is spent talking about stuff. And he schedules two-minute phone calls, two-minute phone calls. That I, My day would be a lot shorter. If every call were two minutes. So he's so not I'm, coming on the podcast is well, what you're saying. That's I not. think that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see, I'd like to see Jeff and Towner face off. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Lord, I don't think there's enough geekdom in America or the firm <laughs> to put up yeah. with that. Or How oxygen. How Towner operate well, with a boss who said two minute phone calls? That is yeah. But you know what? The two minutes would be spent talking about Duke. They're both from yeah. that same damn alma mater. So too, they'd too never bad, get into uh, business. Too bad Tanner took the week off. All right, guys. Well, I hope that your ugly green sweatshirts will not appear on the next episode of the Beltway Briefing. Love Nate. I'm going Sunday. back to the Kelly Green for the next episode. There we go. There you go. Now, good luck to your Eagles, Mark. Uh, they're, they, I mean, I think they should win. I think they're much better than the Chiefs. They have a great all-around team, and the Chiefs are banged up. But I agree. what do I know? What do I Hope know? you're right, Howard. Yeah. All right, guys. Spirited as always. Thanks so much, and we'll be back next week. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.